You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Romans chapter 15, verse 8. We're not going to read the whole chapter here today for the sake of time. Um, We're going to dig right in and um, quick prayer over the study. God, we um, know that this is your word. And as Paul tells Timothy, that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's literally breathed out by the Holy Spirit. As Peter tells us, holy men of God were moved and carried along by the Holy Spirit to write these things. And, and as Timothy is also told, everything in this book is profitable for rebuke and correction and for doctrine, for the truths of the faith. And Lord, we also know that um, the man of God is thoroughly equipped as as he spends time here. And and Jesus is revealed. And so all of those things, God, let them be true today. Uh, Lord, as we just kind of do an expository study through the chapter, and um, Lord, that we would, in a sense, have a bit of a running commentary, Lord, we pray that you would bring it in an an organized fashion that our minds could comprehend and, and fathom Um, this conclusion to the Romans, Lord, and that it would be beneficial for us some 2,000 years later in Crook County. Lord, be glorified. Let your Holy speak. Fill me, overflow me. Less of Rory, more of Jesus today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Dr. Baldwin, who was a pastor of a church for 41 years, said in his journal... With another year, I testify that at 30, after examining as best I could the philosophies and religions of the world, I said, nothing is better than the gospel of Christ. At 40, when burdens began to press heavily and years seemed to hasten, he said, nothing is as good as the gospel. At 50, when there were empty chairs in the home, And the mound builders had done me service. He said, there is nothing to be compared with the gospel. At 60, he writes, when my second sight saw through the delusions and vanities of earthly things, I say there is nothing but the gospel. At 70, amid many limitations and deprivations, he sang, should all the forms that men devise attack my faith with treacherous art, I'd call them vanities and lies and bind the gospel to my heart. The book of Romans has been called high gospel and nothing but the gospel. In the introduction, chapter 1, verse 17, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who would believe, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And we've spent the last 14 chapters in Paul's sustained argument about the nature and implications of the gospel. And that time seems to be at an end. Paul seems to return where he began, speaking directly to the Roman Christians of Paul's own ministry and of his plans. Uh, This conclusion has been thought to be the longest of any of his epistles' uh, endings, and it's matched only by the introduction of the book. And so as we dig into this conclusion in the next uh, week or two, uh, we start in verse 8, where he says, Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, 
for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. If I may read the New Living Translation, remember that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to the promises he made to their ancestors. Imagine the day in the Jews' ears. Imagine those shepherds in the field, as we read in Luke chapters 1 and 2, this last Christmas season, when the angels appeared and said that the Christ is born in Bethlehem, just like it was prophesied in the book of Micah. You'll remember that John the Baptist's dad, Zecharias, heard of this good news, and he, filled with the Spirit, sang a song. In Luke chapter 1, verse 67 through 69, says Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servants, David. When you're talking about Jesus, have you ever called him a horn of salvation? It's time to bust that one out in your prayer time. In the house of his servant, David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers. Now remember what 15.8 says. There's a promise to the Father of redemption. And here comes Jesus to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, speaking to John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us. Have you ever called Jesus the day spring in your prayers? It speaks of the Messiah and times of refreshing flowing from the throne of God. To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And so, as Romans 15:8 says, Jesus has become a servant to the Jews for the truth of God to perform the promises made to the fathers. Jesus came as a remarkable expression of the Father's faithfulness, of the Father's truth, of salvation to Israel. Literally for the truth of God, for the veracity to make good the devotion to truth of God towards his ancient people. And I love the verse in 2 Corinthians 1.20. It seems almost like modern day language where it says, all the promises of God in Jesus are yes and amen. All the promises are fulfilled in Jesus. He's good on his word. They're yes and amen. In fact, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus calls himself the Amen. When he writes to the church in Laodicea, he says, these things says the amen. Have you ever called Jesus that in your prayer life? Oh, is he closing his prayer? No, he's actually just calling Jesus the the fulfillment of truth. Amen. Amen. In Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. And, And as we move on through the chapter, verse 9 
And Christ has come that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So the Old Testament predicted the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah affirmed this, this truth of the coming of the Messiah being towards some that are on the outside of Israel. The lost Sheep, uh, As John chapter 10 verse 16, Jesus says, There are other sheep which I have that are not of this fold. Them I also must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And so, as in verse 8, Jesus came as a servant to the Jews so that the promises could be like, Hey, see, I make good on my promises. There's another reason that he came, and for the, for the uh, Gentiles, as you read in verse 9, and that was that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Remember, Gentile means non-Jew. So if you're not a son of Abraham here today, uh, then you're a Gentile. And praise God that he came unto this earth so that we might glorify him for his mercy. Now, mercy is not getting what we deserve. We deserve wrath. We deserve judgment. We deserve to be in hell for all eternity. And that goes for you and me both. And yet Jesus came showing mercy and we get to love on him and worship him for that. And so Paul, with that in mind, he goes on to quote a few different Old Testament prophecies about the Gentiles being super stoked that they were saved, being super stoked that mercy's been given to them. And it's good to think and to ponder mercy. It's good to talk to mercy, uh, talk about mercy to our children. You know, we have times in our home occasionally where our children sin. It's not very often. And so we try to use those as teachable moments. But there are times where, uh, where we, you know, use the rod on our children and discipline them in love. And there's also times where we utilize that as a moment to teach our children, son, what should happen right now? Oh, I should get a spanking, dad. Yeah, but you know what? I'm going to tell you about mercy right now. You're not going to get a spanking right now. And, and here's why. Jesus has had mercy on us. And we deserve spankings. We deserve wrath. But he's given us grace instead. In fact, here's an ice cream cone. Or whatever. You know, we like ice cream in the Rogers house. I talk about it a lot from the pulpit. But uh, teachable... <laughs> Sorry. Teachable moments for our family, for our kids, to ponder and think about God's mercy and to make it very practical to them. And so uh, these prophetic passages come forth in, in verses 10 through 12. So again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So there was a prophecy back in the day of the missional intent of God that actually the Jews were supposed to be missionaries and to go out and to bring this wonderful salvation message to the Gentiles. But they got very self-righteous in their religion and they started hating the Gentiles. And it became to a point where the rabbis would say that a Gentile is good for nothing but to fuel the fires of hell. And so that was their heart. That was their missional heart now, not the heart of God. In fact, the Old Testament prophesies of Gentiles rejoicing with his people, the Israelites. Now, the word rejoice in the Hebrew means to put into the right frame of mind and be glad and make merry. As Christians, we often come to worship with, you know, uh, kind of a, a pity party going on in our heart. 
and, and we kind of hands in the pockets and, you know, eyes to the ground. And, and there's reasons for that sometimes and could be good reasons. Other times the Lord would move in us by his spirit to rejoice and to cheer and to be glad as we get perspective on things and focus on eternal things. That from the beginning of time, God has had a salvific plan for us to not die in our sins and to not always remain outside of the garden. But he would provide a sacrifice for our sins and bring us back into intimate relationship with Christ for all eternity. And one day, we're going to see him not as in a mirror dimly, but one day we're going to see him face to face. And we're going to know him just as we are known. And so that brings about great cheer in us as we come to worship. Another prophecy in verse 11, again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. The word praise in the Hebrew is hallel. Have you ever heard that before? Hallelujah. Praise Yah. Praise Yahweh. Praise God. It means to shine and to boast in God. Literally, to be clamorously foolish. To rave, to celebrate, to glorify. Rave in 2013 means something else. It's kind of a... Not in the Hebrew. It means to celebrate. Goes on in the prophecy, laud him all you peoples. Guess what laud means? Get loud. Get loud. In your worship, it speaks of a depth of being. Not being timid, but singing out to God. Tammy, come on up. Seriously. Come up here. Yeah. Nikki, get then sings my soul queued up. <laughs> Singing out to God. Now, not in an untimely matter, not without self-control, not without decency and order, but corporately as the context is all of you together. Be loud. Worship God for your depth of being. You are stinking Gentiles who were pagan. And God had it in his plans from the beginning of eternity to save you out of your filthiness. And me too. And to be saved. Let's stand up and sing it. We're getting Pentecostal this morning. It's my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. sings my soul, my Savior God, to Amen. Okay, go sit down. <laughs> Thanks, Tammy.
So there's a beautiful progression in the promises that Paul quotes. You guys are just ready, like, let's, let's do a little more worship, right? The Jews glorify God among the Gentiles. The Gentiles rejoice with the Jews. All the Jews and the Gentiles praise together. And then in verse 12, Isaiah says, There will be a root of Jesse, he who sprang from Jesse. Jesus is the 15 times great, 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 great grandson of Jesse, springing from the loins of Jesse and David. And he would rise to reign over the Gentiles. And in him, all the Gentiles will hope. And so there's this beautiful progression of promises that Paul quotes here. Five verses from the Old Testament that just bam, bam, bam as he's writing a letter. Paul was a guy that was in the Word and knew the Word and it just flowed out of him. An encouragement to you guys to be men and women of the Word and to just watch the Holy Spirit bubble it up out of you when you least expect it. Let's move on to verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Man, two weeks I've been studying this chapter, and this has been one of the nuggets in the, in the whole text to me. You've got these incredible words and names for God. He's a God of hope, and that he'd fill you with joy, peace, in believing that you may abound in hope again by the power of the Holy Spirit. We did an in-depth study of this last week, so get online and listen to it. But how often are we in the opposite state of what verse 13 declares? So often we are impatient, restless, irritated, full of despair, sorrow. There's an uproar within our heart, and we seem to be lacking what the God of hope would supply. Joy and peace coming Remember, what's the source of this joy and peace? It's not you doing P90X five days in a row or by going to some kind of a pep rally with a bonfire involved. No, this, all of this comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when you're lacking in joy, go spend time with the God of hope. Sow to the Spirit, as Galatians tells us. Don't be deceived. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. But if you sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap everlasting life. Now, reading a Spurgeon sermon this week, i got to stop doing it because I just kind of bring them on in. Uh, maybe a little too much. I'm sorry. But as I'm finding the treasure, I'm just sharing it with you, okay? Um, and he says, good points here. Remember that joy and peace are, though eminently desirable, they're not infallible evidences of safety. There are many people who have great joy and much peace who are not saved. Their joy springs from a mistake, and their peace is a false peace, which does not rest upon the rock of divine truth, but upon the sand of their own imaginations. It is certainly a good sign that a spring is come, that you find the weather to be so warm, but there are very mild days in winter. I must not infer, because of the heat of the sun, is it such and such a degree that therefore it is necessarily a spring. And on the other hand, we have had very cold days, uh, cold days in the springtime, which if we had to judge by such evidences might have convinced us that it was rather November than May. And so joy and peace are like fine sunny days. They come to those that have no faith, that are in the winter of their unbelief, and they may not visit you who have believed. Or if they've come, they may not stay. For there may be cold weather in May, and there may be some sorrow and some distress of mind, even to a truly believing soul. Understand that you must not look upon the possession of joy and peace as being the absolutely necessary consequence of your being saved. A man 
may be in the lifeboat, but that lifeboat may be so tossed about that he may still feel himself exceedingly ill and think himself to still be in peril. It is not the sense of safety that makes him safe. He is safe because he is in the lifeboat, whether he is sensible of it or not. And I read that, that you would understand that joy and peace are not infallible or indispensable evidences of safety, and that there are at times... uh, unchanging evidences. And so if you're here today and you're a bit discouraged and you're doubting your salvation, man, rest in Christ. Show faith in Christ. As as Hebrews says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the grip that helps you get that ketchup lid open. All right? And so when you're feeling down and discouraged and in despair and that you're not even saved and God's not there, put your trust in God. Put your hope in God. Put your faith like a little child. Unless you have faith like a little child, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Rest in his good and precious promises. Even when the joy and peace don't seem to be there, press into the spirit. Press into the source. He's the God of hope. And he brings these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. We did an in-depth look at that uh, last week, and we're going to move on in the text. Verse 14, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to admonish one another. As John Stott said, he's engaging in a little harmless diplomatic hyperbole here. He's kind of, you know, buttering them up. You know, it's been a great letter, the book of Romans, um, but there's been some really strong language and even some correction in it. Uh, and, and so he wants to come and kind of encourage them now for a little bit. And he says, you guys, I know that you're full of goodness. I know that that's existing in you. And he writes to the Galatians that goodness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit being in you. And really, it's a fruit of love being in you. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And so he says, I know that's in you. And because of that, I know you're able to, or that you have all knowledge. Some of the churches, he he couldn't write that. You know, he knew they didn't have all knowledge. He prayed to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 9. He prayed that their love would abound still more and more in knowledge, that they'd have discernment. But he seems to think, hey, the Romans, that they've got this great knowledge. uh, They've got goodness flowing out of them. And so that leads not to inactivity. That leads to activity. And he says, knowing that you're able to admonish one another. These Romans were so well instructed in these subjects that they could teach and admonish one another. Not like the Hebrews, who he rebukes in Hebrews chapter 6, and says, I could wish that you guys were able to be teachers, but you still are little babies that are taking milk instead of solid food. By this time, uh, you should be teaching and discipling, and you find that you still have to be taught in the elementary principles of the faith. And so, you know, uh, the Romans had this great... Um, knowledge, great goodness. They were warning each other, as the word admonish means. It literally means um, warn at the mind. And to build up, they indicated obligations and duties that they needed to all fulfill. They expressed warnings to each other and disapproved things uh, that were uh, sin in each other's lives in a gentle, solicitous manner. And they gave earnest, friendly advice. Wonderful evidence of the Holy Spirit working in the church of Rome. 
As so often, admonition is necessary in the church. Proverbs says that faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of the enemy are deceitful. That's wisdom for young men right there. The whole theme of the book of Proverbs, that you ought to know at a young age that you are going to be confronted in your sin, and you need that. The gospel confronts. Jesus confronts. Always in love, always in a spirit of gentleness, always with the intention to gain the brother. But we remember the the great deceiver there in, in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas came to Jesus and betrayed him with a kiss and a smile. And watch out. If that's what you desire all the time is, is uh, kisses and smiles, uh, you're in the danger zone. Welcome those uh, wounds of a friend. You know, constantly today, I keep, I'm reminded of the prophets in Ezekiel, the false prophets, who would constantly say, oh, it's peace, it's peace, when there is no peace. There's judgment on the way as people continued on unrepentant in their sin. And so we're not just talking about goodness and knowledge, but action as a result of that. Verse 15, nevertheless, brethren, I've written boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God. With those wounds of the friend sometimes come bold, protective admonitions and warnings from your pastors and from your elders. And, and you should thank God for that. You know, Jesus did it, Paul did it, Paul would write to the Corinthians, and in the first book of the Corinthians, he says, do I have to come with you with the spank spoon, essentially? Do I have to come with the rod, you know, to correct just your sin that you guys are in? There's all sorts of sin in the Corinthians church that was going on unrepented. Uh, And in the next letter that he would write them, he says, hey, even if I made you sorry with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it. But I know that that epistle, that letter made you sorry for a little while. And I rejoice that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. And so there's times when hard conversations have to take place. And times of correction in love for the glory of God, for the health of the church, and for your salvation, for your sanctification, purposes. And so he has this bold ministry reminding them of things, but this whole ministry, as you look at the end of verse 15, was because of the grace given to him by God. If you've ever ever ministered in any capacity, man, this is a verse for you. It's a verse that's always on my mind as Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 10, uh, recalls that, yeah, he saw Jesus as the last apostle. He's like born out of due time. He says, for I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. The grace, the grace, the grace. It's all about grace. And man, if you're in any capacity of ministry, you remember that. It's not by your works of righteousness. It's not by your merit. It's not by your own faithfulness or your hard work and determination. It's the grace of God. It's a gift. Even if it's a small capacity of ministry, ministering to your family, ministering to your kids, ministering to your wife. It's by grace that you have the ability to be an ambassador of Christ in your home. It's a gift. Don't neglect the gift. Be faithful to the gift. Don't forget the gift and don't demean the gift. 
use the gift and glorify God in it. Verse 16, this grace given to me that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The word ministered here in verse 16 is one of the only places in the New Testament where liturgy or liturgical is used uh, in its place. And it speaks of a priestly role that uh, that Paul was like a priest introducing the Gentiles to God and then presenting them as an offering to the Lord. As Romans 12.1 speaks of our bodies being offered up as living sacrifices. And so normally ministers of the gospel are never called priests in the New Testament. It's only a figurative sense. And the sacrifice that they offer is a sacrifice of people, living people, as sacrifices that are sweet-smelling to the Lord. Their lives are sweet-smelling. Charles Hodge says it's in this beautiful passage that we see the nature of the only priesthood which belongs in the Christian ministry. It's not their office to make atonement for sin or to offer a propitiatory sacrifice to God. By the teaching of the gospel to bring men, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to offer themselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, they are not mediators between God and man. Did you not offer propitiatory sacrifices? They're only... Uh, Their only priesthood, as the Theophylact says, is that the preaching of the gospel and their offerings are redeemed and sanctified men. And so as evangelists, we are priests. As people that are out telling people about the gospel. Now, we're not making a sacrifice of propitiation because that's already been done once and for all by Jesus. When he, as our great high priest, offered himself up once and for all, but rather we come and we bring men and introduce them to the Lord, and then they offer their bodies up as living sacrifices. Uh, All evangelists are priests because they offer their converts up to God. In verse 17, therefore I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in things that pertain to God, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders, By the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. A passage we studied in depth last week with verse 13, uh, looking at our urgent need for the Holy Spirit. As we saw, Paul's ministry was validated by these radical signs and wonders, uh, a working of of the power of the Spirit of God. And uh, that same power is available for us today. In fact, I was reminded this morning of the book Radical by David Platt and uh, just encouraging people to count the cost of discipleship. And in chapter two, uh, he shares about how he was uh, a minister in Indonesia for some time, which has the largest Muslim population in the world. And uh, he would teach at a seminary there in Indonesia. Now for the graduates to graduate, they had to go out into the Muslim country and each one of them had to plant a church that would have at least 32 new converts to Christianity before they could graduate. And so as they came back from, um, from their mission field uh, to graduate, uh, there was um, just this great confidence and humility as well as somber hearts, uh, remembering many of their brothers that were martyred uh, and killed for uh, their 
testimony to the Muslims. Now, uh, as one of the brothers got up and spoke at the graduation, uh, he shared that his name was Raiden. And he shared his testimony with a fiery look in his eye and an intense tone in his voice. He said, before I became a Christian, I was a fighter. I learned ninja, jiu-jitsu, and a variety of other techniques for taking people down. David Platt said, mental note, don't mess with Raiden. He continued, one day I was sharing the gospel in an unreached village with people who'd never heard of Jesus. I was in one house sharing Christ with a family, and the witch doctor from the village came into the house. Witch doctors and magic men were common in villages like these. They hold sway over entire communities with their curses and incantations. The witch doctor called me out, Raiden said. He wanted me to fight him. Raiden smiled as he confessed. My first thought was to walk out there and take the witch doctor down. But when I turned to go outside, the Lord told me that I was no longer needing to do the fighting. God would do the fighting for me. So Raiden walked outside, pulled up a chair, and sat down in front of the witch doctor. He told his challenger, I don't do the fighting. My God does the fighting for me. Raiden recounted what happened next. As the witch doctor attempted to speak, he began to grasp for air. He was choking and couldn't breathe. People came running to see what was wrong, and within a few minutes, the witch doctor had fallen over dead. By now, the entire village had crowded around the scene. Raiden said, I'd never seen anything like this, and I didn't know what to do. But then I thought, I guess this is a good time to preach the gospel. <laughs> Raiden smiled and said, so that's what I did. And many people in that village trusted in Christ for the first time that day. Uh, David Platt goes on to say, now I'm not recommending this as a new church growth methodology. Making pronouncements on people that lead to their deaths just doesn't seem to be the best way to go about things. But this story was a clear reminder to me in the 2,000 years ago when believers proclaimed the name of Jesus, it caused the blind to see, the lame to walk, and the dead to rise. The name of Jesus had the power to cause evil spirits to flee and to bring the most hardened hearts to God. And the reality is 2,000 years later, the power of Jesus' name is still great, right? So you've got Paul's testimony of his mission field all roundabout, he says there, in a circular pattern throughout uh, Asia Minor and in Illyricum all the way to Jerusalem. He'd fully preached the gospel of Christ and it was born witness with radical signs and wonders. And honestly, we don't see that a lot in America because we don't have a lot of needs in America. And we have a lot of other things that we trust in besides the gospel and besides God. But you talk to your brothers that are ministering into foreign fields and, uh, and they testify to many radical miracles uh, just like this. So uh, we did an intense study on the signs and the wonders, the miracles that produce wonder and the signs that uh, aren't signs unto themselves that we would worship signs, but they all signify, and just like all signs, they point to theological truths like Jesus is Lord. He is Christ. He's died for your sins. Now put your trust in him, uh, and people would do that uh, in this ap apostolic ministry. So I encourage you to listen to last week's study for more on that. For the sake of time, we're going to um, move on through the chapter today. But uh, a quick prayer written in my notes, may God's dynamite power be upon us to take the gospel in a circle in our region. To Mitchell, John Day, Post, Polina, Pal Butte, Redmond, Madras, Ben, Sisters, Lapine, where we, where we would be willing to allow the Holy Spirit to testify of his grace. And uh, I love that word, roundabout to Illyricum. It's just this circular pattern that he did, preaching the gospel in a spiral. Verse 20. I know what you're thinking. There's only 33 verses and he's in verse 20. It'll go fast. 
hopefully. And so I've made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. Now, having been uh, part of Calvary Chapel for a while, and you get around uh, this circle, and uh, you get guys that can tend to be kind of territorial uh, in their ministry. And, and even in a giant city like um, uh, Chicago or L.A., um, you know, guys that'll be like, hey, you know, only one Calvary Chapel in this town, please. Don't build on another man's foundation. And, uh, in fact, my friend was going to go uh, plant a church in Ireland. And I won't say the town because I don't want to. But... Uh, but he was forbidden by the pastor in town to start a church in Dublin that has 4 million people because uh, there was a, a Calvary Chapel with 20 people. And so, you know, and, you know there's, there's wisdom and a degree to some of that. And then there's time where it's like, guys, don't take this verse of Paul's out of context. You know, Paul knew that uh, his ministry, his commission by the risen Christ was to go to the places where there was no worship of Christ at all. He knew what his commission was, and this didn't include activities like further evangelism and pastoral care. He was to go where Christ had never been preached before. One guy said Paul had a true pioneer spirit. He was a true pioneer evangelist, opening virgin territory to the good news of God's grace in Christ Jesus. And so Paul would speak more of that in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. But going on, he says, as it's written in verse 21, To whom he has not announced, they shall see. And those who have not heard, they shall understand. Uh, and so, you know, Paul just quoting a lot from the book of Isaiah and showing that it's a great source of gospel testimony. In the book of Romans, he's quoted chapters 40 through 66, a bunch to bear witness to the truth of the gospel. Verse 22, for this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. You know, there, there was a church that was begun in Rome already, and, and Paul wasn't the father of that church. And so he says, my ministry is out there to the boonies where Christ has not been named. Also in this book, you read a lot about the um, hey, book plug, right? Okay, there's a few in the church library here. Uh, you read about the 300 and something unreached people groups in this world who've never heard the gospel and don't have a Bible in their language. Much of them are in India, northern India, and the tribes up in there. And, and so uh, Paul had a, had a ministry to those people. And he says, because of that, I haven't come to you yet. But in chapter 1, you see, man, he really desired to go and be with the Romans and to have some fruit among them. He goes on to say, now, um, verse 23, but now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you. If first I may enjoy your company for a little while. So Paul has some traveling plans here. He wanted to sail from where he's writing right now in Corinth to Jerusalem. From Jerusalem, he wanted to go all the way over to Spain and stop by in Rome on his way. If, if you do all the calculations, that's about 3,000 miles by ship. It's farther by land. And uh, I mean, you just look at that adventurous, missional spirit of Paul in, in a day when it was like, okay, you got your sandals on your feet, or you got a boat with wind, and, and that's the method. And, you know, may God put in our church a broad global missions heart. You know, yes, in this town, that we'd be faithful to preach the gospel here and to make disciples here, but in that circular pattern around us from uh, Jerusalem and Judea and the uttermost parts of the world, or Prineville, Madras, you know, Hong Kong, you know, whatever it might be, that God would uh, give us that same heart. And so he looked to go to Spain or to Italy and uh, had, a, had a real desire to make it 
through his way through there. Verse 25, but now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. And this is a great scripture just showing uh, our relational responsibility uh, to the nation of Israel. As God promised to Abraham, I'll bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who Uh, who curse you. And as we look at how uh, the Israelites and the Jews, even in their error, uh, they were great custodians of the scripture. We have the Old Testament. We have the words of life brought to us uh, through the Jews. We have the law given to us to be a tutor to us, like a teacher, and show us our sin and our radical depravity and our need for a savior. And so uh, we're very thankful towards uh, the Jews, and we pray for them. We pray for their salvation. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, we're Twitter friends with the Israeli Defense Forces, and we find out what's been going on over there, right? We, you got no? Oh, me neither. Okay. Uh, and we pray for them as we hear of the rockets being launched in, and we pray for their enemies too. The Israel might be a light uh, to them as well. Now, Paul reinforces this truth of. Uh, we've, we've received spiritual salvation uh, from Israel, and now in, in turn, we minister material things to them and help them out, whether that's, you know, going on a tour to Israel someday, hint, hint, wink, wink, okay? Or, um, you know, Florence Calvary Chapel, they take their youth group over, and it's called the Zion Project, and they go over and they minister to the communities over there and pick up garbage, garbage horrible everywhere the place, tons of littering, and they just minister to people uh, tangibly with love. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 19, even though we did a song, I think we've got time for it, um, in the New Living Translation, he says, don't forget, That you Gentiles used to be outsiders by birth. You were called the uncircumcised ones by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from God's people, Israel, and you did not know the promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you belong to Christ Jesus. Though you were once far away from God, now you've been brought near to him because of the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has made peace between us Jews and you Gentiles by making us all one people. He's broken down the wall of hostility that used to separate us. By his death, he ended the whole system of Jewish law that excluded the Gentiles. His purpose was to make peace between the Jews and the Gentiles by creating in himself one new person from the two groups. Together, as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He, was brought, he has brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who are far away from him and to us Jews who were near. Now all of us, both Jews and Gentiles, may come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. Now, so, you, so now, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Don't you love that that ending there? We are now citizens and not foreigners, not aliens. We're part of God's family. I just feel the Holy Spirit asking this question now. Are you part of God's family? Have you been born again? Have you been brought near? Do you realize that God has has broken down the middle wall of separation that separated you from your creator through the man Christ Jesus? And that today by resting in him and believing in him, you can have all your sins washed away. You can be as white as snow, though you once had garments that were charred with soot. 
And you can be a new creation in Christ, brought near, part of the family of God, an adopted Jew. That can be you. No poetry involved. Okay. And so the Christians... Uh, as Christians, these Gentiles wanted, it pleased them. They knew they had the responsibility. They were debtors to minister to the Jews in material things. As F.F. F. Bruce says, it was a small return on the part of the Gentile churches. If they were invited to contribute to the material needs of the mother church of Christendom, it was the acknowledgement of a debt, a moral debt, not a legal one, that the mother church had every right to expect from Gentile Christians. And so it's just amazing how Paul knew of the famine that was happening in Jerusalem and that the mother church was starving. And so he went around and he had this, uh, he had this fundraiser going on. And, uh, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you read that the Corinthians had been all excited. Yeah, we're totally going to give. And then they kind of forgot about it as a year went by. And Paul had to write him and say, hey, I'm reminding you, you were sure excited about it a year ago and we're going to come collect it. So better get that excitement level up again. And uh, it had like the thermometer in the church, you know, like, you're here, you need to be here, right? And that's when Paul spoke to them and just said, hey, look at the Macedonians, who even though they're suffering, they find great joy in giving this gift. And he goes on to say in verse 3, I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift. Give it, you know, please take it, take it, take this gift. We want to help the mother church. As Warren Wearsby says, we Christians ought to feel an obligation to Israel and pay that debt for, by praying for Israel, sharing the gospel, helping in a practical way. Anti-Semitism has no place in the life of a dedicated Christian. Verse 28, therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. So he plans to visit Spain, and whether he went and evangelized in Spain, we really will not know until we see him. But uh, interesting that Clement of Rome wrote about Paul that he was, had noble renown as a herald of the gospel. To the whole world he taught righteousness and reached the limits of the West. He bore his witness before rulers. And so back then, the limits of the West were Spain. So perhaps he made it. Most believe it was after he was imprisoned in Rome at the end of the book of Acts. And then uh, as he got out for a little while, he went over to Spain and then was arrested again and um, eventually beheaded. Uh, so it's cool. He has this desire to visit Rome. And he ended up visiting Rome. Boy, howdy, did he visit Rome um, in a prison there. But uh, verse 29, but I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing and the gospel of Christ. And in closing, now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to God. There's a begging, a beseeching, a pleading. The language says that Paul was on his knees asking. This is, this is a very somber moment for him. He's asking, he's, he's throwing out, a prayer chain, a, a prayer request. It says, I'm begging you, and, and there's two incentives to pray. First of all, begging you for the Lord Jesus, in the Lord Jesus. If you've ever loved Jesus, pray for me, he's basically saying. If you love the Holy Spirit, incentive number two, pray for me, he says. Strive in prayer. The word is agonize. The, the NEB version of the Bible says, be my allies in the fight through prayer. And here's this prayer request that, we're to, that they were to agonize in. 
First of all, that I might be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe. There was a venom in the Jews against Paul. He was one of their sons in the Sanhedrin. He was a Jew of the Jews. Everyone looked up to him. He was, he was a ruler. And then he went and became a Christian. And he changed his name from Saul to Paul. And there was great bitterness against him. And so he says that I, that I would have safe time when I go to Jerusalem. And secondly, he needed prayer that his service for Jerusalem would be accepted by the saints. Verse 32, that I might come to you with joy and by the will of God, and that I might be refreshed together with you. And so there was this deep fear of his foes, and he had a doubt about his friends. Because even the Jewish Christians there, they were a little bit, you know, they, they had to fight against legalism. He's basically saying, will I be killed by my enemies, and will I be accepted by my friends? And what did Paul do when his spirit was greatly oppressed? He sent out an urgent prayer request. So do that here, church. When, when there's that urgent need and stress, come to the pulse. Come let us pray for you. Email, what's the email address? Gail, I'm just blanking. Gail, come on, seriously. CCCC, C4, four times. Prayer request at gmail.com. Email that. Get it out to the church. Let us pray. Put it on Facebook. And let us agonize with you. Whether it's about a friend or a foe, Matthew Henry said, As God must be sought unto for the restraining of the end will of our enemies, so also he must be sought unto for the preserving of the increase of the goodwill of our friends. For God has the hearts of both one and the other in his hand. Labor fervently in prayer, as Epaphras did in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. Labor on fire in prayer. And sometimes we come here to the Pulse prayer meeting on Thursday night, and we've got headaches, we've got stomach aches, you know, and we've got a new season of a show on TV that, you know, the enemy's trying to get us to stay home. You know, there's all sorts of things that distract us. And we come, and as Spurgeon says, brethren, if your heart wax cold in prayer, beat it on the anvil of the Holy Spirit, and watch it get hot. And I came in this last week, and I was like, guys, I just got to confess, I'm not feeling it tonight. <laughs> you know, at 5.45, I was hungry, and I wanted to go home. And I confessed that to the Lord. And at 6.30, when I got the, 7.30, I got the guitar to do the last song. Rich goes, man, it seemed like this prayer meeting was going really slow, and I thought it was halfway through, and that you were doing some halfway through song. And it turns out we're five minutes over. And I know what you're thinking, Rory, you are five minutes over. Okay. Hey, let's just close out uh, the chapter. Chapter 15. Verse 32, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God, and I might be refreshed together with you all. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Come on up, worship team. And in that prayer request of Paul, Kevin and Chad and myself would plead with you. We would beg you as brothers and sisters to come with us into the inner chamber of prayer. That you'd come with us into the Holy of Holies. That we would approach the mercy seat. That we would pray like Epaphras with vehement, on fire prayers. Agonizing. Agonizing as the language speaks. For this church for our financial board and the decisions that need to be made, for the, the, the lost in our community, for the lukewarm in our church, for the marriages that are broken. Are you agonizing? Are you agonizing? 
Man, we plead you to be a church of prayer. And if you can't make it to the pulse, be prayer warriors at home. And in this new year, it might be a good idea, you know, for you to, to just commit to being at the pulse to some degree. You know, maybe if you can't make it every week, I understand that. But maybe once a month, come and corporately uh, seek the Lord specifically for this church and labor and agonize. Uh, with with us for this body we're going to close with communion and uh, just remembering as jesus said the death and the burial and the resurrection of jesus proclaiming that and if you're not a christian today it's it's best for you not to partake as paul says in first corinthians you would drink wrath upon yourself drink judgment upon yourself Um, but the good news is is right now where you're at You can just confess to Jesus that you're a sinner, that you've fallen short of his perfection. And you can receive as a gift, as a little child receiving a gift, you can receive new life, forgiveness of sins. You can receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that you can have power to live a life worthy of an incredible God. You could come this morning for the first time and take a a little cup of juice that symbolizes a whole lot of blood that was shed on a mountain in Israel. And you can take a cracker that is little and unleavened, that is a symbol of Jesus' whole body that was whipped and stripped and beaten and broken, even though he was unleavened, even though he was without sin. And you can remember how much he loves you Lord, we just pray that as we take the body and the blood in a figurative sense, and we remember just your great love, Lord, that you would press into us all of these truths of this study today, though it seemed to be a bit of a running commentary and not necessarily a three-point outline. Lord, it's your word, and we trust in that, that that regardless of outline format, your spirit is is able to uh, change the hearts of men and women and conform them into the image of your Son, that we might know what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Do that in our midst today. And we thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.